So Money, episode 108, David Stein. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. How are you? Hope you're doing fantastic. My guest today is David Stein. He's the host of Money for the Rest of Us. It's a weekly personal finance podcast. He also runs the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, which is an online educational platform on money, how it works, and how to invest it. And he knows a thing or two about all of that because previously he was chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist at Fund Evaluation Group, a $35 billion institutional investment advisor. And it was there that he co-led a 20-person research team and managed assets for endowments, foundations, and financial planners. And now he's taking all of that knowledge, all of that experience, and bringing it to you and I. Three amazing takeaways from our time with David. One, his financial philosophy, which is that you got to focus on the extreme, not the expected outcome major flaws with traditional financial theory, and how to maximize, as he says, well-being with minimum amount of consumption. Here is David Stein. David Stein, welcome to So Money, an honor to have you on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. I would love to start by kind of asking you a little bit about your professional transition where you were at one point, you know, chief investment strategist, chief portfolio strategist at Fund Evaluation Group, a multi-billion dollar uh, institutional advisory, investment advisory. You led a, a big team there. You managed endowments, foundations, financial planners. Now you are a solopreneur in, in many ways. You know, you left that uh, in many ways, a very exciting career to do something that was more personal, more kind of solopreneurship. How was that transition for you? I'm curious because for many people, especially listening on the show, they want that transition. They want that journey. They want to leave the nine to five to do something on their own. What gave you the, what was your aha moment? And then what made, gave you kind of the courage to, to make that happen? Well, my, my aha moment was I was speaking at our annual conference. So we had three to 400 clients on from, and from the mostly not-for-profits, but a lot of people in, in the financial industry. And, and I remember being on the stage and the presentation was going well. And it's one of those presentations, when you talk, you, you, you sort of know what you're saying. At the other hand, you get that little voice going through your head. And, and at that moment, that little voice said, you, you've peaked. You, you sort of have reached the pinnacle. There is no higher you can go in this existing profession. You're already a senior part with your firm. You're managing a team. And, and that little voice really started questioning. I was in my mid-40s, and I was making a very, very good income. But I also just felt like if I stayed, I would just be waiting out the clock like in a basketball game. I really needed to make a change. And I talked to one of my mentors, a friend, and, and he says – because, you know, my biggest concern was leaving is loyalty. You know, I had these partners. Mm -hmm. We'd been together 15 years, and I didn't really want to let them down. On the other hand, my friend says, you know when it's time. 
And, and I think for people considering a transition, just listen to the voice in your head because there will be a time and you just know. And, and so I fl- took the red eye one, one night and showed up the, at our executive committee meeting and I let my partners know that, that I was leaving. And I remember being in the hotel that night, just laying in the bed thinking, I can I do done? <laughs> anything I want with the rest of my life. <laughs> That's but a, I didn't know what it was. So, right. But I left. I left. Wow. So really you were at this point in your career where there was, you went from having a lot of certainty in your life professionally to a moment where you're just like, I don't know what the next step is going to be. What does your family think of this move? Were they supportive? Were they also scared? They were very supportive. I, I live in Idaho. I telecommuted for 10 years. So it was not, my my wife Laprelle was not worried about, gosh, this guy's suddenly going to be home all the time. Because I was already working from home for a number of years. And and they were excited because, and Laprelle has always been, she's a risk taker. And in many ways, much more of a risk taker than I am. And she said, go for it. And my kids were happy because I could spend more time with them, particularly my teenage daughter. And she, you know, kind of her, her year, she's 17 now. So it's been three years and we've been able to travel together as a family and just spend a lot more quality time. Because before I, I traveled a lot and it was helpful to work from home, but I probably spent, you know, I traveled over a million and a half miles over a period of 10 years. So it, it was good to not have to travel anymore. And in many ways, what you're doing now is not a stretch from what you were doing before, except now you're doing it on a more personal kind of, uh, you know, you're really bringing your voice to play. You're helping people uh, connect with them, connecting with them on your podcast, on your blog. So it, it's it's not this far removed new venture. It's it's very much in tandem with what you were doing previously, except more on a kind of a micro level. It is. And it took me a while to get to that point because- Literally, when I when I quit my job the next day, in fact, I was on the airplane flying back to Idaho on my last day, and I launched this new website because in the money management business, I was very competitive, and and I I managed portfolios, and the key was to to outperform the benchmark, and I and I thrived on that, but I just didn't like the structure back at my old firm. There's just some th- some things that changed with their team. So there was, there's, there's, whenever you leave a, a firm, there's always multiple reasons. So I launched this business and, and I realized within six weeks I'd made a mistake. I absolutely hated it. I, I was miserable because I, I had quit my job and started the exact same job with all the pressure of managing money. And, and I shut it down on the advice of a friend. And so it's taken several years. And I realized the part about investing that I miss was just teaching people, talking to them. And I love being able to, to talk just how intimate a podcast is to be able to mm-hmm. share and answer emails and take questions, but not doing away. I no longer give investment advice. So I just, I like to be able to give the education without having to feel the pressure and the responsibility of making, managing someone's money. As someone who also has a podcast, I find that there are recurring questions that my listeners tend to ask. It seems everybody wants to know, how do I know when I'm ready to work with a financial advisor? That's like my biggest question that I get among a few others. What is your biggest recurring question? Well, I get that one a lot. (laughs) Should I hire a financial advisor? But I get a lot of questions on on because I talk a lot about how the economy works. So I get a lot of questions on particular investments. 
a lot of people ask specific investment advice, and I, I can't give that, but I usually point them to maybe an audio lesson I've done on that topic. But they're at, they people want help, and and they want help from people that they can trust, and and that's the what's so wonderful about podcasting is there's no better forum that to, to have people learn to trust you because they get to know you, and and it's very hard to be disingenuous when you're speaking. People can pick up. It, when they listen to a voice, who is being genuine and who is not. And so that level of trust really is there. And so I get a lot of specific questions. How can you help me? And then I, I try to teach as much as possible without telling them exactly what to do. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. And the other thing about podcasts is like, you could be having a really bad day and it'll show, you know, <laughs> or like you could have a cold and it'll show. And so the people get to see this multi-dimension to you that um, they don't get through a blog post or through a polished media interview on TV. It's like, yeah, it's very raw. And so for better or worse. Oh, exactly. I mean, even last week I recorded in the really early morning, I had this song stuck in my head and, and literally, and I'd, I'd made up some lyrics and I sang the song and and afterwards, I said, I cannot believe I did that. But I didn't want to re-record the thing. So I just, I published it. And I said, I told people, you'll never hear me sing again. But that's me. And I felt like singing this 30-second song that it did apply to the topic. But so, yeah, it's raw. That I mean, has a great term for it. It is definitely raw. It is raw. raw. Yeah, I love it. I, I think it's great. I think it's, it's, it's a... Uh, and that's why it can create this intimate forum because... Um, People, you're, you, people are getting you at you know in a way that you know, uh, unplugged as MTV would say. Exactly. What is your biggest financial philosophy, David? One that helps guide your financial choices, but also is, uh, you know, is reflective of how you also coach people. Re- really, there's two. The one is focus on the extreme, not the expected outcome. And what do I mean by that? Most financial advisors, they're, they're, they might be doing an asset allocation study or a financial plan, and they, they always focus on the expected return. What do you expect will happen? And, and I learned very early in my career that I shouldn't worry about what's expected to happen. I should worry about worst-case scenarios and, pre- and prepare for that. So I focus on extreme, particularly in the financial markets, because there, there's major flaws with traditional financial theory in that markets are way more volatile and way more clumpy in, in the sense that bad things tend to clump together in markets way more than, than traditional financial theory suggests. And so when we just focus on expected return, we leave ourselves open to extreme events. And, and so I am a very, very conservative investor and I teach my my listeners how to manage for those extreme events and so you never get caught you're not 55 and have 80 percent of your of your finances in the stock market and the stock market crashes and you and you mess up your retirement plans you'd never want to be in that position certainly when you're younger you, you can avoid that the other thing though is i there is a economist back in the 70s named ef schumacher and he wrote a book called the small Small is beautiful. And one of his sayings from that book that really resonates with me is we need to maximize our well-being with the minimum level of consumption. And so throughout my life, I'm trying to, right, how can I maximize my happiness, my joy by spending as little as possible? And that doesn't mean to be frugal. That means 
there there is a balance there between maximizing that that happiness in life but not overdoing it. And so one of the challenges for all of us is figure out where where is that level? How what's the choices that I can make so that I can have that well-being maximized, but I don't have to to spend so much money and try to do it on as little as possible, but you don't want to cut you don't want to completely cut it out. I saw this on your blog. You call this the mean is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that would be you, that's a golden mean as an example. And that would, that would be a, a way sort of Aristotle talked about the same thing. You want to find sort of that that happy medium between you've maximized your joy, but you're not overdoing it. And that was a big theme of Aristotle to, to never not not to do too little or too much, but to find what he called the golden mean. Mm. Well, in some ways, it's, you know, it's this like, philosophy that less can be so much more. Um, I've interviewed people who live in tiny houses and for them, this is a, a way to really downsize extremely, but more it's through that lifestyle. They've learned the, the beauty and the joy in, in other ways to live simply, you know, whether it's having your own garden or riding bicycles to, instead of having two cars, you have a bicycle that replaces one of the cars. And so I think that, uh, as soon as you make a small tweak, not that a tiny home is a small tweak, but it, once you make one decision to live simply, it sort of opens your eyes to other possibilities that can uh, bring you a, a lot of joy on with not spending a lot of money. Well, exactly. And then there's let's think the, the small home, for example, and we, we downsized our home. We, we moved in this 1500 square foot home. But all we did to open it up is we knocked a hole on the south wall because there was no windows. And it's amazing the the change you can make to a small house just by having windows on <laughs> perpendicular side and open up the south. It feels because you feel like you're outside. And so it's it's things like that that you can live rich without the money just by kind of knowing, well, how can you recreate that experience of wealth without necessarily having <laughs> to spend all the money? And it 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 can be done. I put mirrors in every room because it makes the room look bigger. So how about well, that? Yeah. yeah. There you go. And we are going through a renovation right now. Um, well, soon. And one of the things that we decided to do was break down a wall that's going to give us more sunlight. Um, when you walk into the apartment, there's more of a, like a wow factor as a result, you know. And so I'm all for the open flo- floor layout plan, especially in small spaces, because you get more sunlight. It feels a little bigger, more spacious. So yeah, see, and that didn't cost much money either. No, and it'll transform your apartment. I mean, mm-hmm. and it'll it'll make you happy. It will. It will. That's a great, great philosophy. Actually, two philosophies. What is your greatest financial memory growing up as a child that did influence you either in a good way or a bad way? I grew up in a, a single family household. So my, my parents got divorced when I was 10. My dad was an alcoholic. And, and my first really significant money memory was not having very much and realizing that. First, of all, I grew up in a very Catholic community. So the fact that my parents were divorced was very much an anomaly. I think there was one other person in my class of 100 whose parents were divorced. And, and I was one of the only students getting a little free lunch token. And so I really realized that and then my mom left because she had to go work. And my mom, when she was had graduated from high school, had a choice. She decided she could either go to college or she could buy a car. And she, bu- she bought a little red sports car. And as a result, wasn't really in a position 
to care for me and my and my sister. So you had to go out and work, and she and she sold Tupperware. She made dolls. We would go to, she would do flea markets and and all type of things that we were on food stamps. And and I realized sort of how vulnerable we were. And probably a telling memory was realizing we didn't have enough tuition for me to go back to my Catholic grade school and being absolutely terrified that I would have to go to the public school. And, and it turns out we, somehow the money came, but it was at that time that I realized I need to find a way to make money. And we saw, I was reading the Cincinnati Enquirer and there was a full page ad and there was a man there talking about sort of his financial freedom. He had his big picture of his motorhome and how he's traveling the country and making money. Well, he didn't say online because online didn't exist, but he was using mail order. And, and I convinced my mom to buy this, this set of books. And, I, and this was, I was probably 11 at the time. So for about three years, I, w- I was so focused on making money. I mean, I read Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and The Greatest Salesman in the, war, in the, in the World, and, and all these books. And I started these businesses. I was going to do a, a handwriting analysis business. And I put an ad in the paper, and I we got the P.O. box, and I was so excited to open up that P.O. box with all these orders, and there was nothing there. Aww. And I said, well, I just need to make a bigger ad. And so I went national, and I was going to do this research service. And I, same thing, and nothing there. And so I had these early failures but I just had this desire that I needed to control my destiny. So later I, I started a business washing walls and windows. And, and a lot of my businesses were failed because I was just terrible at it. I remember washing windows. That was my business. I was a professional window washer. And I was using a squeegee. I'd read how to do it in a book because I go to the library and learn all this stuff from books. I could not get the, sque- the, the streaks out of the window. And literally my, my client had to lend me some Windex Ugh. And paper towels to wash your windows. Windex heals all. Exactly. So those were those early memories, just realizing I needed to find a way to control my destiny because I didn't want to be in a position where somebody else not having the money would cause sort of pain for me and mm-hmm. fear. Fear to not be able to go to school where I wanted to go. Yeah. What would you say was your greatest financial failure? I almost don't feel like you had any, but maybe there was a moment that wasn't your best financially. It doesn't have to be this big catastrophe, but maybe it was a time, an event, an experience that um, you kind of wish hadn't happened. Well, I, I can give you one that, that we're experiencing right now. Oh. Back at the bottom of the real estate market, we, we have always, we live in Idaho, we always wanted to buy land in Teton Valley, overlooking the Tetons. This is just on the other side of Jackson Hole. And we bought this 80-acre farm with this house, a bit, way big house, about 4,000 square foot house, way bigger than we needed. But they sort of threw this house in for free. And we just fell in love with this place. And so and we thought, well, we could tear down the house or we redo it. So we decided to redo it. So suddenly I have a significant amount of money in this vacation home, which has been wonderful for friends and family to come visit. But across the street, there was this abandoned gravel pit that I didn't really pay any attention to. And last fall, it started up again. And suddenly, in my quiet, serene setting, I have dump trucks going up this dirt road every three minutes. And, and I've worked with the county, and they, they say, and I won't get into the details, but they say there's nothing you can do. And, and so I, I now see this very large investments, property value, 
has been impaired significantly. And, and I don't, I, we've put it up for sale and we'll see how it works out. But I, I, I'm already stealing myself that this is going to be a pretty large financial loss. And, and the mistake was, I almost say it was a mistake to buy it, but it was a mistake to completely focus on the emotion and how, how cool it was and not sort of do all the due diligence. I, I mean, I could not have missed that gravel pit. I should have done, I used to be on planning and zoning commission in our town, so I should have done the due diligence. I didn't do it. And it's a financial mistake. And you just, mm-hmm. you have to sort of check the boxes and not always make decisions based on emotion. Yeah. And, and with real estate, it's very easy to get caught up. It, it is. And that's, and I, we've made money on houses. We've lost money on houses. We've lost a lot of money potentially on this farm. But what I, I do better, some people are better with physical investments. I like, I know a lot of farmers that that's the only way they invest. They like the real estate. I like paper assets. I like virtual investments. I, I can emotionally distance myself from them easier than I can walking into a beautiful home and wanting to buy it just because I like the feeling of it. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. And hopefully it won't be this huge detriment on the value. But like well, you say, focus not. on the extreme not. and not the expected income. Well, the other thing that you just – these things happen – and yeah, it, it'll hurt, but it's not like it's going to ruin my retirement. Right. It's just, it's just going to hurt, kind of stings, made a mistake. You never want to put so much in any investment that it, if it goes badly, you're, you're significantly impaired. So that's mm-hmm. another example, just focusing on the extreme, not what you expect will happen and, and, and protecting yourself against that. What would you say is your greatest success financially, a so money moment? Well, I, I think what allowed me to to retire, the fact that back when, when I wanted to manage money, so traditionally at my firm, we were a consulting firm. So we just would make recommendations to these not-for-profits and, and, and they would sometimes take our advice, sometimes they wouldn't. So we would always work with these boards, but I wanted to manage money. And so I created a financial product that I thought would just be incredibly smart. We researched money managers. I was going to get the best money managers in the world that we research. I would take their top five holdings and create this great portfolio. And, and I could always envision these big houses I was going to buy because how successful this was going to be. So I spent a six months back testing this idea and, and it didn't work. It didn't outperform the market. And I, I was so discouraged because our business was researching managers and how could a product that we had our best managers, best ideas not outperform the market. And I, I spent time and I realized many times what man, when they outperform, it's their factor exposure. It's just their value tilt. And, and as a result, I, I created a completely different product just using passive ETFs. And I would adjust the factor exposure and I, I would adjust the allocation. I back tested it. It worked. We started marketing to our clients and eventually it came to be 25% of our firm's revenue. The same time we had bought out our parents. So now we own the entire company. And and that combination of that product and the combination of the buyout that was successful allowed me where I could say, all right, I know what my partners owe me if I decide to leave. And, And I looked at that number and it was just a number on paper. And I thought I could realize that number by quitting. And that's what I did because then I don't have to worry about retirement. I, I still need, I mean, I like to work, so I still work, 
but that was a financial success. It was some of my own ingenuity. There was a great deal of luck in terms of timing of our leveraged buyout. But I, I have to point that that certainly something that worked out for me. Yeah, absolutely. My family. Gave you a lot of security to be able to experiment with something new. And we could we all hope for that someday in our lives. Right. What would you say uh, is one of your greatest habits? In our case, we, we do an annual budget. So some people like to do a monthly budget. I find that our expenses are so variable because we like to travel that I do a, an annual budget. So And I look at it once a month. So every month I look at, all right, here's our assets. Here's what my performance was in terms of my portfolio. Here's what we spent. But always keep it in the context that here's the annual plan. So that's just simple Look at it once a month, but do an annual budget. All right. We are almost wrapped here. Before we go, I would love to ask you, well, actually have you answer some so money fill in the blanks. So I start off a sentence and you finish it. The first one is if I won the lottery, let's say $100 million, the first thing I would do is? I'd start an impact investing firm, which is a really a, a firm or join up with one where you invest in people and projects, but you're willing to accept a lower rate of return that you might otherwise because of the social impact that it has. It's, it's an area that fascinates me. And so I, I'd spend more time on that. A lot of my listeners have been writing in, not a lot, but enough where it's clearly a, a, um, something that they're interested in is about social investing. What are some resources that you would recommend people check out to learn more about this? Well, I think if you just if you Google impact investing, that'll bring up a just a wealth of information in terms of how to do it on a on a social aspect. I mean, people, when you talk about social investing, there's social responsible investing, which is which is completely different from social impact investing. In my case, I'm very much in, into how can I help people, but do it in a way that's sustainable. So if, if they're generating some type of return people are more willing to stick with it. And that's the beauty of it, as opposed to just giving money to someone. If you, you invest in them, then it becomes much more self-sustaining. The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is? I spend a lot of money getting my hair cut. Really? My, uh, yeah, I used to travel all over, and I actually had hairstylists in different cities. Well, I... I my hair is very straight. And somebody told me once your hair is like cutting a bonsai tree. And, and I <laughs> like to pay for art. And it gets back to how can I maximize my well-being with the minimum of consumption? So I had this challenge. How much did I have to have to pay for a really good haircut without overpaying? And, and so I just like a good haircut. And, and I can pay a lot less in Idaho than I can the, the person I, I used to go to in New York or in San Diego or in Seattle. But yeah, I... One of those things. I have a bonsai tree on my head. Well, you know, as a woman who spends a lot of money on hair and hair coloring and all of that, I mean, I think a lot of women pay more money than they are willing to admit on hairstyling. And it's sometimes a discriminatory thing because if you're a woman with short hair and you just want to trim, chances are it costs more for you than a guy with the same head of hair. So um, I... I kind of take pleasure in hearing that you're spending a little bit more than average on your hair. For once, a man spending a little bit more money on his haircuts. I ha I, I, I have spent $100, over $100 in New York to do that, and which is expensive. And But I, I don't spend anywhere near that now. I've found a way to lower the 
price. But yeah, it it makes you feel good. One thing that I splurge on, now this might be the same answer, but try to think of a different one that I spend too much money on is? I went too much money. We splurge on travel and and I splurge on clothes, but not I, not just buying as much. It gets back to, I buy a lot of used clothes. We spent a lot of time in vintage stores growing up, thrift stores, and I find that clothes is art. So I, I like to buy clothes in the sense of trying to find a wardrobe that'll last forever. How can I buy, find the best quality classic items? And it's just... It's just a hobby. And I, and, I, and I think about this as a kid and I realize, you know, even as a second grader, I, I loved my pair of plaid purple pants. I mean, which is bizarre. They were bell bottoms. But some of these things that you like as an adult start out very, very young. And who knows where they come from? Mm-hmm. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? I, I wish I had a better sense of how little we had and, and how close we were to to being homeless. We, we happened to have a home with a $125 mortgage payment. And I think if I, I mean, I knew we didn't have money, but if, I guess I, I wish I had been more empathetic to, to my mom and mm-hmm. her not knowing where the next dollar was coming from. And because I think I could have been more helpful. I mean, yeah. I wasn't, I was a good kid and, and but as a kid, you're a kid, right? I mean, so when you're adult, you think, well, things you wish you, you would have known. I wish I could have been more adult-like as a kid. Well, you know, I think it's more true. Yeah, I think, you know, a six-year-old can't do much, but maybe a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old could understand kind of the the situation um, and can contribute in some way. And, and I think kids want to help. You know, I think parents sometimes underestimate the first, the, the ability for their children to pitch in when times are tough, but also the level of desire that kids actually have to contribute to their family in, in that way. Kids want to feel and, involved. And I did help. I mean, I, my, I was responsible for the water bills. So, I mean, I, I had to raise money for the water bill. So I helped, but I didn't, you know, I might have done it more willingly had I known exactly how little income we actually had. And that's one thing I've done with my kids. My kids, when we talk about annual budget, we, they know how much money we have. We know what money we spend on. When we travel to Europe and Asia, we showed them, all right, this is what it costs to travel. And they realized that. And my son said, you know, realized it was a lot of money. So he went back to Japan and learned to travel on 1500 bucks for two months. Wow. And so there's ways Whoa. to travel and, and there's other ways to travel. And so, but you have to be transparent with your kids because they have no idea. And so we've tried to do that with ours. How old are your children? Our oldest is 23. We have an 18-year-old, or I'm sorry, a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old. So they're, they're grown now, but that's something, the other guilty pleasure. We've always traveled with them because we wanted to, them to see how other people live and how different the other people live so they have a more of a broader perspective. Mm-hmm. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because... I like to I give to charity, but I like to give to individuals that that I can have more of a direct impact. So, a example: helping a single mom who just got divorced come up with a down payment for to buy a house to, to move her kids. I mean, that's something I did for my son's friend because otherwise he's going to move out of the city, so he could help them. So, something just and you know, a lot of times we don't. You can do it anonymously, but we we want to. I like knowing who we're going to help and the impact, and, and that's just how we like to do it. 
And I'm David Stein, and I'm so money because... I love to teach others about money, how it works, how to invest it, and more importantly, how to live without worrying about it. Yes, and I learned so much from our conversation. Focus on the extreme, not the expected outcome. Uh, that there are major flaws with traditional financial theory and how we can all maximize well-being with minimum amount of consumption. Very well said. Thank you so much. And share with us where we can learn more about you. You can. My website for the podcast is moneyfortherestofus.net. I'm also on Twitter at J.D. Stein. Perfect. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Farnish. Thanks again to my guest, David Stein. As you said, you can find him at moneyfortherestofus.net or on Twitter at JD Stein. And I want to hear from you. Submit your question about money, work, life, or guests at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh and ask away. And there's a really good chance that I will answer it in the upcoming weekends. And as a reminder, if you'd like the chance to win a free free 15-minute money session with me. Hop onto iTunes and leave a review for this show. Every Saturday, I select one new reviewer to get a 15-minute money blitz with me. I've been doing this for a couple of months now, and I've had a great time getting to connect with you one-on-one. I love it. If you want to do this with me, uh, please go on iTunes, and hopefully we will connect. Thanks so much again for tuning in. Hope to see you right back here tomorrow. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. 